One Hope Church. Look into the Word of God together. <clears throat> um, we're going to continue our study, Second Samuel. This morning we are in chapters 8 and 9. Neither of them are very long. Um, and so we shouldn't have any trouble getting through these, but there's a, a good bit in here for us to look at. I'm just going to say up front, in chapter 8, it's just a lot of war. There's a lot of war. There's a lot of violence. Um, you know, we, we live in a, a world that has been full of violence. You know, the history of human beings has just been pretty violent ever since um, Adam and Eve sinned in the, in the garden. You know, we have um, the first two sons, Cain and Abel, and, um, and Cain kills his brother Abel, and the rest of human history unfortunately, um, has had just an awful lot of war. If, if in our lives, if in your life you, are, you experience relative peace um, and, and there's not active war in your town, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. It's just too easy to take that you know, for, for granted. Um, it's easy to take that for granted, but that is not been the experience of just so many people throughout human history. Um, and and the, the heart and root of it all is man's sinfulness and selfishness and pride and arrogance and not respecting um, that God has made us in his image. Uh, you know, all the war, all violence has its root, you know, in, in human sin. All of it does. Now, sometimes um, people have to defend themselves. You know, there's a difference, even in the Old Testament, there's a difference between um, unprovoked violence and, and provoked violence, right? There's a difference between aggression, aggressive violence, and defensive violence. Um, and, and sometimes people have to go on the offensive in order to be in, in, in order for, for their defense, you know, to happen. Um, and we see in, in Israel, they have enemies in this, in this series, you know, we're going through the Old Testament and we're looking at the nation of Israel and they have enemies on, on all sides. And so sometimes they're just being straight attacked and other times, you know, they, an enemy is coming to them and they go out, you know, to, to meet them. Um, but you don't find... In Israel, history is, is really, you don't find very much of, of Israel initiating, um, of being the initiators of it. It's, you know, they're being attacked and then therefore um, they have to, to respond. Um, so we're in 2 Samuel chapter 8, and uh, I'll just pray for us and then we'll, we'll read this passage and, um, and get into it. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, for your love this morning. Lord, it's, it's hard to hear and sad that our um, human experience since sin into this world has been um, so full of violence. 
we're thankful, Lord, that ultimately you will bring peace. We're thankful that, Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace, and though you will come back and judge, it is ultimately for the purpose of establishing a permanent peace. And you went to the cross, Jesus, and suffered at the hands of wicked people against those who are violent. And you died to give us peace. And so we're thankful this morning. And we're thankful, Jesus, that all the evil in our world and all the wrong in our world is not go unnoticed by you. But that you are loving and that you are holy. We thank you, Jesus, that you love us. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. So at the end of chapter 7, in chapter 7, just a reminder from last week, um, David has it in his heart to build a temple for God. <clears throat> but he's told, um, you know, Nathan initially, the prophet says, hey, that sounds great. You know, do all that's in your heart. You know, Lord's with you. And then he receives a, um, a conversation from God that tells Nathan, hey, you need to go back and tell David, this isn't your job. This isn't for you to do. Um, it's for someone who's going to come after you. It's for your son um, who's going to be the one to do that. And that God would establish um, that throne forever. But he promises, God promises David that he's going to be with him, that he's going to protect him, um, that he's going to give him victory. And so it's in that context of chapter 7 that you go into chapter 8 and you have kind of this summary, um, a a summary of David's, you know, wars, Um, really. It's not um, meant to be, like, super chronological or that, you know, all these things, you know, happened right here in this particular part of the book. There are you know wars and and things talked about from various sections and and then there's more detail in other chapters about these specific you know battles and wars that took place. So chapter eight is more of a of a summary, and so you have to look at it that way and uh, and you have to look at it in the context of of more time as opposed to you know when you just read a chapter it can sound like all this happened in a week. You know, or something. It's like, well, that's not where the case. This is a you know over a period of time. And so, in verse one, it says, "After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Method Alma from the hand of the Philistines, and then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive." So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river of Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Betha and from Barotha, cities of Hadadezer, David, King David took a large amount of bronze. 
When Toy king of Hamath heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toy sent Joram his son to King David to greet him and bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. Then King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hedadezer, the son of Rohab, king of Zobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Um, and we'll stop there for a moment. And so we see that there was, you know, there, there was battle on all sides. You know, one border you know, is the Mediterranean Sea to the west, but toward the north, the east, and the southeast, they had you know, enemies on, you know, that surrounded them and, you know, were, you know, and wanted that land. That land was very strategic then, um, and it's very strategic now. But we need to understand that it's only because God was with David that he's able to have these victories. Um, you know, God gave David victory, and David certainly was wise and strategic as far as on the human side of what he needed to do. You know, his responsibility as a leader and as a warrior, we see throughout David's life, he was very good at strategy. You know, he, he fought well, and he, he, first of all, had a great confidence in God and God's ability to give him victory. We see that in his one-on-one victory with Goliath, with, against a much stronger um, opponent who should be able to you know, dispatch David um, you know, like he's nothing. And yet, David has confidence in God. He also has a strategy. David's not, David's not like, hey, you know what? I'm just going to go and wrestle this guy you know, to the ground or go sword to sword with him, you know, and, and I, that's what I'm going to do. No, David takes his sling and a stone and knows that he can kill Goliath before Goliath can ever put a hand on him. Um, and so you, you see that strategic mind that he has that's God-given, but he has responsibility to exercise it. And we see that throughout his military career. And at the same time, we recognize, you look at the numbers of the warriors on the other sides, and you go, it's only by God's you know, help that they're able to, to win and to have victory. It says here multiple times, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And that should have given him just an incredible amount of confidence at all times. We, at, a, at a couple points, you know, in, in 1 Samuel, we see his confidence wane and we see him, you know, make some decisions that appear at least to us to be made out of fear, out of opposed to, you know, prayer and what God wanted him to do. We see that human element in him like is in us. I mean, y'all understand we shouldn't fear, right? But yet we fear. You know, it's easy to go, David, I mean, come on, look, God gave you victory here, God gave you victory there, and yet, you know, you went and acted like you were a crazy person, you know, out of your mind, 
so that you could be protected, right? Um, sorry, I didn't mean to say that in an insensitive way. But you understand what I'm saying. He went and acted like he was, he was not in his right mind because he feared Saul would get him. And so he goes over to an enemy camp and, and stays there for a while. But in, in, in our lives, like y'all understand, we do that too. We act, at, we act out of fear at times. We shouldn't. And even more so than David, you know, David, the Holy Spirit would come upon David. If you're a follower of Jesus in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit actually indwells you all the time. And you have the scripture. You know the story from beginning to end. Uh, we have less reason, less excuse when we fear and fail than David did. Uh, do y'all understand, you know, we talk, I talked about this before, you know, David, because of the promises of God, could have walked, you know, right into the enemy of, uh, you know, the camp of the enemy and just said, bring it. But, and because God had promised him, he would have been secure. He had nothing to fear from man or beast because God promised him that the Lord would give him victory and preserve him. Now, we need to understand in the sovereignty of God, like nothing can happen to us that God is not okay with. Now, that might still give us fear because we see New Testament believers die, right? We see them martyred. And God was okay with that. It was part of in his bigger purpose and plan. He was okay with that. But do you all understand... Like, nothing can happen to you outside of God giving permission for that to happen. Now, that doesn't entitle us to live reckless lives. You know, don't go, don't take this message and be like, you know what? I'm going to try to skydive without a parachute. I mean, that's foolishness, okay? Don't, don't, don't do that. But what I'm saying is, especially when it comes to the spiritual things, don't be in fear. Don't be in fear. And you might be in you have different fears. Well, I'm going to lose this friend if I tell the truth about this. Well, you put that in God's hands, whether you lose the friend or not. Put that in God's hands. Well, I'm going to lose my job if I do X, Y, or Z. Well, if that's what the Lord wants you to do, if the Lord asks you to do X, Y, or Z, you still need to do X, Y, or Z. And if you lose your job, you know what? God's okay with that, and he'll take care of you. I mean, that, that, we need to have a different mentality. We, we need to have a, a mentality that's not based on fear, but is based on promise. Not based on fear, but based on promise. That we're secure in the hands of God. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. You see, because Jesus told us he told us not to fear. I mean, he's very specific. Don't fear those who can kill the body. I mean, he knew his disciples were actually going to die by swords in other ways. And he's like, don't fear those who can kill the body. Just don't do it. So when we're, when we're in fear, we're, I mean, and he also tells us not to worry about tomorrow. I mean, we have all these things about fear and worry in the scripture. So when we're doing that, we need to be careful that we don't just write it off as natural. It is natural, but we need to be careful that we don't just write it off as natural. But we say, Lord, I acknowledge 
that my feelings are not good and not pleasing to you. Take, please take those away and replace them with a spirit of courage, of power, of love, and of sound mind. We acknowledge it. You know, I think a lot of times we just acknowledge, yes, I'm fearful. But then we don't do anything with that. We don't crush it. We don't crush it and we don't overcome it. When that's really needs, that's got to be our mentality. When I am fearful, that fear needs to be acknowledged and in the power of Jesus, crushed. It needs to be crushed. Because that's not how I'm supposed to live. That's not how I'm supposed to operate. God's given a spirit of love and power and sound mind. That's what's available to us. And when David was walking closely with the Lord, he, he knew that and lived that out. And when he was in his flesh, he just did what we all do. He's just to react in the flesh. Fight or flight. So we, we shouldn't, we got to get beyond fight or flight in our lives because our lives aren't supposed to be about fight or flight. Our lives are supposed to be about obedience. What does Jesus want me to do here? And do that. And just do that. Now, in these first 14, chap- 14 verses of chapter 8, you have a lot of bloodshed, right? I mean, there's a lot of bloodshed going on there. And this is one reason why, and probably the main reason, that God didn't want David to be the one to build the temple. And this is clearly told us in the scripture, First Chronicles 22, verses 7 through 9. It says, And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give him I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. Now that's an interesting thing. Because though most of, of David's warring was righteous and you know was in the you know what what he needed to do as king and what God needed to do and God you know was with him in those battles and preserved him in those battles yet God cares about human beings you know God cares about bloodshed and he didn't want his the builder of his house to be associated with that much blood I mean, obviously as well, God in his omniscience knew the, the mistakes, that are, you know, the, mis- the big mistake that David makes that's coming up soon um, in the story. And, and the, there's blood on his hands from that. And so God doesn't want his, his house to be built by David for that reason. And, that's, and, and that tells, again, something about the character of God. And it's another one of those things where we have confidence in our scriptures. And we'll talk about this more when we get to David's fall. But 
you know, if you're just writing a story to make everything sound good and sound great, like you don't have things like this in it. You just leave it out that, you know, God didn't want David to build it because of the, the bloodshed that he had committed. You would just leave it out. You wouldn't have it as part of the story if it were just making it up to try to make everybody who follows God sound as great as possible. But that's not what our scripture does. Our, our scripture gives us the true history. And in it, we see God still work despite man's brokenness, humans, human brokenness and sin and failures. And this should give us hope and confidence. Because we mess things up. We make mistakes. And our mistakes are not the, you know, normally speaking, they're not the end of the road. You know, our, our mistakes are to be learned from and we grow from them and the Lord picks us back up and we're still useful in his service. I mean, praise God, because how many of us would be, you know, would the Lord have had reason to say, okay, done with you? But yet in his grace and his mercy, he, he, re, you know, he cleanses us and he picks us up and he puts us back into his, his service and into his work. I mean, praise God for that. We certainly don't deserve it. But God is gracious. And then in verse 15, 15 through 18, we see some of David's administration. It says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Amalek, the sons of of Abathar were the priests. Zariah was a scribe. Benahad the son of Jehoda. Jehoda was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. And then we get to chapter 9. And said, Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they called him to to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. And the king said, Is there not so someone of the house of Saul to whom I show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Emil in Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him out of the house of Maker, the son of Emil from Lodabar. We'll stop there for a minute. Um, and this is a, a story we looked at last November um, in our, we did a little series on forgotten heroes. And one of the heroes that we looked at was, um, you know, Jonathan's um, helper, basically this, this young lady who was given the task of, of helping Mephibosheth, like caretaking for him um, as a child. She was employed by Jonathan to do that. And when Saul and Jonathan are, are killed, you know, it's common in these days. Everybody knew David and Saul were rivals. And though David's heart was linked to Jonathan and they cared for each other, you know, greatly, in the culture, in the in the, you know, this part of the world, 
you know, people understood that when one king dies and another king is going to take his place outside of that family line or even within that family line, that new king will often kill his rivals. Now, again, remember, Saul is the first king of Israel. David is the second. They're, they have this in their minds because this is how it works in all the nations around them. They see it. They've heard the stories. And so the assumption there is David would do the same thing as the king of the Syrians or the Ammonites or the Moabites or the Edomites, whoever it is. I mean, he would do the same thing, right? He's going to look to now just extinguish the house of Saul and to kill every last descendant that he possibly can. And so this is in this young lady's mind when she picks up you know, Mephibosheth and goes to run with him and she trips and falls and Mephibosheth ends up you know, having his legs broken or his feet broken, I guess it's his ankles or whatever, but he's lame in both his feet. They don't, they're not going to work for the rest of his life because unlike today, you, know, you can't just take him to the hospital and have a surgery and rehab and everything and he's going to be fine. No, that, what happened to him with a, a child had a lifelong consequence. And we, we talked about her being a hero because her intention was to save his life and she accomplished that though she didn't accomplish that perfectly again hello like us and God cares more about our intention than our execution you know if you have the right heart and you're doing you know and you try the best you can and you come up short from a human perspective God still views that as victory you know, we view it from a human perspective of, you know, did you win or not? It's like really cut and dry. But God looks at the heart. Because he puts everything else in, he, has, he, has, he sees the full picture of ability and opportunity and, and, and what you did with what you had. You see, God judges it differently. You know, when we have when we have a swim race, we just go, okay, what was the fastest time? That's the winner. I mean, it's really cut and dry for us. At the, end of the, at the end of the sporting event, what was the final score? Somebody gets celebrated and somebody else is going to lose their job. That's just how we work. But God views it in terms of what did you do with, with what you were given? How good of a steward were you there? And so the person who came in, you know, toward the end, came in eighth, in, in God's view, that can be the true victor. Because that one did the best with what they had. And that's what he respects and what he honors. And, and we need to try to learn to see ourselves that way and others that way as well. Are you, are you doing the best with what you had? And, and to be realistic, you know, for, for, one, for one kid in the classroom, it's like if he doesn't end up with the best score, if he doesn't end up with straight A's, you know, he's failed because God's given him the, all the abilities. 
still might end up first in the class or second or third in the class but fell short of what God had given and you have another student who might be in the, you know, toward the end of the pack but man maximizing everything out of what they've got maximize it you know what, what, what is honoring to God in that situation you know it's that we, you do the best that you can you know, and, and we all need to have that mentality. What's the, what's the best I can do? And what's the, what's the best I can do for the Lord? Um, so may God help us even this week to have that, that mentality. But we see here, in this chapter, you have, I, I think you have David's heart at its finest. At this point, the victories, the success, the power that he now possesses have not gotten to his head. He is not thinking more highly of himself than he actually is. He's still humble before God and before people. And we're going to see David at his absolute best because he had made promises. He had made promises to Jonathan. And he sought to keep those. And so now that, that he is, has established himself without doubt that he is the king, he wants to fulfill that promise. So he asked Ziba, who was a servant of the house of Saul, and again, your heart there, you know, you see David's heart there because you know, he doesn't kill or punish Ziba. But he says, is there someone whom I could show the kindness of God? And that's an interesting way that he puts that too because, again, he doesn't elevate himself. He's not like, anybody I could show my great power and kindness to that I am the benevolent king. You know, now he says that I may show the kindness of God. And there's... Jonathan, who's lame in his feet, and he's in the house of Mecca, the son of Amiel, and Lodabar. Um, now, Lodabar, I, I don't want to exaggerate it, because, but just, it's, it's known as, a, or even the name has it with being a, a desolate place, or a, a place that, basically it's a place that's not great. Amos, um, you know, writes about it in, in that way, um, that it's, it was one of the deals later on in, in Israel's history where they um, had lost that territory and they take that back, but they kind of give themselves credit instead of God credit. And, um, you know, Amos kind of in a sarcastic, tongue-in-cheek sort of way basically says like, okay, you took back nothing, <laughs> referring to the name of, of this place. Um, and so... It's one of those places, it, it does seem to be that, it's, that it had value based on where it was in relation to other things around it. Like, you needed to go through it, but it's, it's a place you would go through. It's not a place you necessarily want to stay and, and live and set up shop. But obviously, uh, the reason I say you don't want to, we don't want to exaggerate it too far, um, there is a, um, a person there, Makir, 
the house of Mekir, the son of Emil, he's obviously made it a, a go for himself there. You know, even in places that are not great, you still will find, you know, a few, a few people who have done pretty well for themselves because they've been strategic in their approach, you know, and so this is that sort of situation. Like, I mean, and, and what I mean by this is like, you can go to some of the poorest places on earth and you'll find a few people who have real money. You know, you think, well, everybody in this place is poor. No, most people in this place are poor, but there's a few people who are really rich because they, they figured it out. They figured out how to do something there strategically that other people there didn't figure out, and they're super rich. And so you have this guy who has resources, and he's taken in Mephibosheth. And I, and I, I, was, I was studying for, for this one. It killed me because in our Forgotten Hero story, I, I completely just missed this dude. Uh, Maker. Makir. And we don't fully know his motivation. Perhaps he had been, you know, loyal to the house of Saul, you know, in the past, and then here's Mephibosheth, and he's, you know, he feels that responsibility and allegiance there. We don't know that for sure. It could be this that Mephibosheth needed help, and his heart is to help somebody who needs help. That could be it. We, we can't say that for sure. What I can tell you for sure is after chapter 9, this man becomes 100% loyal to David. And we'll see that later in the book. He becomes 100% loyal to King David after what happens here in chapter 9. And, and what I think does that and what, what is revealed in this man is he has a heart for what's right. He truly is a hero, and he has a heart for what's right. And, and I think that's revealed here. We get a glimpse of it here um, in chapter 9, and then later on in chapter 17, we'll see that full out, that it's confirmed that this man has a great heart, and he's courageous, and he's a hero. So my apologies to you all and to him for missing that <laughs> back in November. Um, but, you know, that's good. And, and that's just, again... One of those reasons why, like, keep going back to the scripture. Keep going back to the passage. Whenever you are tempted, when you read a scripture and it starts to sound familiar to you, and you, you, you read a, a story or you read one of the, uh, you know, a parable of Jesus in the Gospels, and if you have this thought in your mind that says, oh, I know all of this. I know this one. I can just kind of skim through this and skip over. Stop. Go get up, go look in a mirror and say, you are a liar. <laughs> go look in a mirror and tell yourself, you are a liar. And you are arrogant and prideful. And just repent. And just say, God, I am sorry. I am sorry. Because you have not exhausted it. You have not exhausted it. And, and, and you might, listen, there might be the fifth time you read the scripture and you might, you know, you might have studied a passage the first five times and gotten something new every time. And then times six through 49, you didn't see anything new. 
You didn't see anything new. Six through forty-nine. Hey, go back to that mirror. Again, go back to that mirror when you're tempted to say, "Well, I don't need to do number fifty because I already know." Because it might be on number fifty that your mind is blown. It might be on number fifty that your mind is blown. We need to go to the scripture. Remember that the scripture is rich and it is truthful. And to not have an arrogant, prideful, I know this heart when it comes to the scripture. I know there all there is to know about this. Don't, we can't do it. You'll miss out. It's to your own. The reason I say that so strong this morning is because it's for your own. De- it's to our own detriment when we do that. When we do that, we hurt ourselves. And, and just, just, so just don't do it. Stay, stay humble and keep going back again and again and again. Again and again. Because really, that's, I mean, that, I mean realistically, that's probably number, time, time number 50 for me in that passage. And you can say, well, Chet, you're just, you know, not very bright. Well, so be it. I mean, so be it. But number 50, I'm serious. Number 50, I'm, I'm like, really? I hadn't, I hadn't caught that before? Because I'd been so caught up in the other characters and the other parts of the story that I missed that dude. And, and I missed the connection of where else he is in the scripture. What else he did. So just, yeah, that, I mean, if you take anything away from this morning, take that. Take that. Keep going back to the scripture. Okay, verse 6, we'll finish this up. Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of David, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show the kindness, show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he, that's Mephibosheth, bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba. Saul's servant said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. And you therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. And you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table continuously. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servants, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. And he was lame in both his feet. There's just so much here um, that is strong and that is good for us. You see Mephibosheth brought out um, of a a situation that was, even though he was taken care of, it was a situation that was limited. It was a situation that was different than you know Jonathan would have expected for his son you know when you imagine when, when he was Mephibosheth was born 
Jonathan had dreams for Mephibosheth. You know, Jonathan had a dream that he would give up his place as king, that David would take it, and that he would be basically second in command to David, and that his son Mephibosheth would grow up in that house and would also you know, be one of the leaders of Israel. That didn't play out like Jonathan thought it would. It didn't play out like that. Because of his loyalty to his father, Jonathan dies with his father on a battlefield at the hands of the Philistines. His son then has his you know, ankles or his feet are, are, are broken and he's going to be lame for the rest of his life. That, that wasn't what Jonathan had expected. Um, and I'm sure there were times where Mephibosheth thought what might have been as he heard the history, as he grew up and heard the stories and knew what, what a hero his father was and what he had done and what his place in, the, in, the, in Israel could have been. It'd be kind of hard not to be you know, a bit depressed about that, right? And you see, I mean, you see some humility but also some truthfulness about himself when he says, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? You know, but David doesn't say, you know what? You're right. You know, you can't really that be that much good to me. Um, yeah, forget everything I was going to do here. Just go back and live with that other guy like you were. I'll send, you, I'll send some bread your way. No, I mean, David gives him back his father's like personal estates. He gives him employees. <laughs> this guy's going to work for you. All these people are going to work for you, for your family. But you're going to eat at my table like one of my sons. And we see that that's, I mean, in, in a certain sense, David in this, this passage you know, adopts him. You know, you're going to sit at my table like one of my sons. And that's a true love that he had for Jonathan that's played out in the life of Mephibosheth. And there's just a lot here for us because, you know, while Mephibosheth was, was physically lame, we were, we were spiritually lame. While Mephibosheth is in, has some security in the house that he's in, he still lives in a desolate land. We live in a spiritually desolate land. Anywhere on this earth, because, I mean, you compare it to what it should be in Christ, it's all pretty rough. I mean, some, is, some places are worse than others, certainly. But we're called by the king, just like David was called by the king. And we're given a place at the Lord's table. 
because of what the king has done for us. Because the victories that the king has had, we, you know, Mephibosheth got to benefit because of all the victories and all the battles that he couldn't fight in. He couldn't fight in them. But he got to be a beneficiary of all of it because of what the king did for him. You know, spiritually, we, without Christ, we couldn't fight any battles. We were inept, out ability, and our king died for us on the cross so that we could be taken out of the kingdom of darkness, freed from our slavery and sin, made part of his family, given a seat at his table, but then also, you know, we're restored spiritually. And then we're told, put on your armor and go fight. Not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of, of darkness. We're told, you're not, you know, you're not spiritually lame anymore. So that's one big difference. You know, Mephibosheth still had that physical, you know, David didn't, didn't heal him. But when you come to Christ, like you're spiritually healed. You're spiritually healed. And then you're told to go put on your armor and to go join the battle. I saw this quote, um, I guess earlier this week, and it said, you know, a disciple is someone who has gone from being the mission of the church to someone who is now responsible for the mission of the church. So that's strong. Everybody get that? A disciple is someone who's gone from being the mission of the church to someone who is now responsible for the mission of the church. So we just don't stay where we are. God saves us, redeems us, makes us a new creation. And says, now get up and in his power, fight. Be part of his mission. Like that's what the Lord has for us. And we're promised that we get the fellowship to be in communion with him now and forever. And the Lord's prayer to, prayer to place for us. And you remember the night that Jesus took the bread and the cup and shared it with his disciples. And Jesus said, I won't take with this until when? Until I'm with you again. really we would be with him and like there's a there's a in Revelation there's a feast there's the marriage supper of the lamb and we're invited and that's it's, it's like I mean we, we kind of get blown away by what happens here in 2 Samuel chapter 9 but, but listen folks like this is just like a tiny tiny percentage a tiny percentage of what's available to us what is going to be provided for us and given to us this is amazing but it's fractional compared to what Christ what we experience in him now that is available to us in him and will be in the future given to us in him so I hope that that's an encouragement this morning and I just have to say 
you know, just just for a minute, you know, imagine Mephibosheth after all of this, just going like, nah, that's good. I, I I don't need it. I don't want to be at your table con- <laughs> continually. I'm, I'm fine. Can you imagine that? I mean, it breaks my heart because people do that all the time with the gospel. We do that all the time with Jesus. No, I'm I'm fine. I don't need that. Can you imagine? But now let me just throw this scenario out a little bit different. In the sense of, can you imagine if Mephibosheth had been healed? It's like, hey, now you can go be a commander in the army. You think there would have been any hesitation or any doubt that Mephibosheth would have been like, game on. Like, like, let's go. Game on. There's no hesitation. There's no doubt that that's would have been his reaction. Again, going back to that spiritual situation for us. It's like we've been, if you're in Christ, like you've been freed from your slavery, like you've been freed from sin and from the power of sin, and now you get to participate in the mission of freeing other people from, from spiritual slavery. I mean, how do we not say in response to that, like, yes, Jesus, you know, game on. Like, let's, let's go. I mean, how do we do that? But if we're honest with the, ourselves and with each other, I mean, come on. We do that a lot. We, we, we end up having like that mentality that's not, it's not a warrior's mentality. It's, a, it's somebody that's been defeated mentality. We need to have a warrior's mentality when it comes to spiritual battle of like, we are equipped, prepared, like Jesus is with us, game on. That needs to be our mentality. And when we don't have that mentality, again, go back in the mirror like earlier and look at it and go, stop lying. You better stop lying and start believing the truth. And tell yourself the truth. Preach to yourself the truth. Preach to yourself the scripture. I mean, listen, if you're, if you're like, my quiet time isn't going so great. Right, things seem a little stale. Well, maybe you need to do something a little bit different. Maybe you need to get up, stop sitting around on your couch, you know, all comfortable with your coffee and being like, ah, I'm just going to, you know. Hey, I do that sometimes. I'm not, I'm not knocking it. Okay, I'm knocking it a little bit right now. In the sense of like, if you're spiritually dry and that's what you're doing. If you're spiritually dry and you're just doing the same stuff and you're like, why isn't something happening different? Why isn't something click? I mean, get up. Go to a mirror, take a passage of scripture that you know is going to kick your tail. I mean, go read Ephesians 6, go read Colossians 3, go, I mean, read, all, read the entire book of Colossians. Read an entire book, read it out loud to yourself in the mirror. And when you find stuff that's true, that resonates, preach to yourself. Just ask God for help. Preach to yourself. Tell yourself the truth. Like, get out of your own head and, and stop doing what's comfortable. And let the scripture do its work. Let the scripture do its work. Because God's word 
again, it is powerful. It is powerful. If you're having a hard time concentrating, stand up, read it out loud. Stand up, read it out loud. Find yourself distracted? What was the last verse that I remember reading out loud to my own ears? Go back. Start there again. Like, don't be slack. Preach that to myself this morning. There's a mirror right here. Put a selfie camera out. Hold it up. Don't be slack. Don't be slack. Because we have a city that desperately needs Jesus. And we have followers of Jesus in tough places trying to be light. We need to pray for our city and pray for each other and ask God to help us. And when the Lord is with us, and more importantly, when we are in His presence, no weapon formed against us shall prevail. No weapon formed against us shall prevail. Like God's got the victory. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we just pray that you would help us. Lord, I pray that you'd help me. I thank you that that what you did for Mephibosheth, what you did through David for him was amazing in his life. But that's just a tiny taste of what you've done for us spiritually. So Lord, please help us not to take that for granted. Please help us to be thankful. And please help us to tell ourselves and one another the truth and to have your scripture tell us the truth and to be filled with your love and your joy and your power and your presence and that we would go forward as warriors to acknowledge that you have equipped us to acknowledge Lord that we have responsibility and help us not to be afraid but to be strong in you. As we take the bread in this cup this morning, before we take it, Lord, convict us of sin and cleanse us. And as we take it, Lord, we pray we take it in thanksgiving with joy in our hearts this morning because you, O oh God, are great and mighty. And Lord, that our hearts would just desire to be close to you Because, Lord, we know if that is true, we will be obedient to you. And help us, Lord, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.